On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. We'll start with the business post. RTE's chair's bid to appoint Backhurst stalled by shocked board members. This is a report by Killian Woods and Donald McNamee who tell us that the national broadcaster RTE is in crisis this weekend after shocked board members pushed back on plans to name D Forbes' successor as Director General at an emergency meeting on Friday. Amid a board backlash, the RTE chair, Suni Rahlig, stalled a vote on preferred candidate Kevin Backhurst, who was the number two in Montrose, up till 2016. The Business Post can reveal that Backhurst's appointment was effectively derailed after board members called for him to be brought in to give a presentation. Some board members had expressed surprise at the ruling out of contention of the widespread favourite David McRedmond, the chief executive of Unpost from the process. The next DG of RTE has been described by one industry expert as the most important in the history of RTE, following Forbes' turbulent term in office. Uh, Killian Woods, one of the co-writers of that story, will be with us a late, little later this hour to talk us through exactly what went down at the RTE board meeting this week. Um, the front page of the Sunday Independent, two major stories on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Firstly, the idea that Justice Minister Simon Harris could be forced to scrap powers to give Garda Siakana powers to use facial recognition technology as part of a new body cam legislation. Uh, that's because the Green Party is escalating its opposition to the plans. Uh, they believe that Harris will have to bring in standalone legislation to introduce a legal right for Garda to use facial recognition software in limited circumstances. But that would probably delay the use of the software, which Harris had hoped to incorporate in legislation to give Garda the power to use body cams before the summer recess. Uh, the other story on the front page of the Sunday Independent is that the HSE's National Investigation Unit has launched high-level probes into 83 cases of workplace bullying, sexual harassment and harassment in the health service in just three years. They include 10 formal investigations into sexual harassment in the workplace, with three complaints being upheld so far. 15 formal investigations into bullying were upheld. All 83 cases represent the tip of the iceberg of bullying and harassment experienced by medical and administrative staff across the health service. They date from January 2020 until this year, and more details about that uh, inside. The front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday is um, quite a significant one, actually, in truth, um, and probably something which has gone, uh, if you'll pardon the accidental pun, under the radar until now. Dublin airspace was forced to close twice last week because of air traffic control staffing issues, the Irish Mail on Sunday has learned. Um, In a highly unusual move, planes were left circling for two half-hour periods in the early hours of March 29th so that exhausted air traffic controllers could take a break. And now, a well-placed air traffic control source has warned of worse to come this summer, as staff shortages and a lack of goodwill from hard-pressed employees uh, look set to ensure that this was not a one-off event. Uh, The source told the Mail on Sunday that inbound, outbound and overflying traffic was affected by the closures last week. Now, if you get further into the story on the inside of the paper, you'll see that a notice to airmen was issued on Tuesday, March the 28th, uh, indicating the Dublin airspace would get to a zero flow rate uh, from two in the morning until half past two, and again from four until half past four. Now, you may think that that would um, basically encroach on very few, if any, um, planes flying overhead, but there are always some transatlantic flights that come in around about that time to Dublin. So several aircraft were affected, including an Aer Lingus flight from Boston and another one from Newark, just outside New York. Both had to hold over Shannon 
until the Dublin airspace reopened. Uh, there was also an Aer Lingus flight from Alicante, which had to hold just south of Dublin before it was allowed to continue. A lot of cargo planes were also affected. And do bear in mind the fact that that might also impact flights going overhead. So if you had transatlantic flights that may have been going over Dublin's airspace on their way to continental European destinations, all of them affected uh, by apparent shortages in air traffic control staff in Dublin. And finally for now, the, uh, the Sunday Times. Uh, support for Fine Gael has plummeted by eight points to an all-time low as Sinn Féin secured its highest level of backing. This is the latest Sunday Times Behaviour and Attitudes poll, uh, which shows that Sinn Féin support has surged by five points to 37%. That's compared to the previous poll about a month ago. While Fine Gael's support has dropped from 23% last month to 15 now. Satisfaction with the government has also dropped significantly from 41% in February to 34% now. That's the lowest level of satisfaction since the government was formed. So Fine Gael's support plummeting by eight points uh, in the period which they are putting down to um, the ending of the evictions ban and subsequent contentious dole votes. Interestingly, in the middle of all of that, though, uh, Fianna Fáil, the party which holds the housing brief uh, in the government, uh, managing to rise one point to 21. And there's now a six-point lead for Fianna Fáil over Fine Gael. But, of course, uh, both are quite a distance behind uh, Sinn Féin. In fact, I think this may be the first time in the series of Behaviour and Attitudes polls that Sinn Féin's vote combined is greater than that of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Sinn Féin at 37, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael together put at 36%. Uh, that is your quick digest of what's making the front pages of this morning's newspapers. Uh, an unusually busy studio uh, this morning, because not alone do we have Valerie Cox, uh, journalist and author, and Sheena Cahill, who's an account director at DHR Communications and a former president of the Union of Students in Ireland. Uh, we're also joined, for the first part at least, because she has a train to get to, and we're very pleased that she's been able to drop in uh, for a few minutes before she has to get to Roscommon, um, by Rachel Lavin, a now UK-based uh, data journalist uh, with the Sunday Times. Uh, good morning to you all. Thank you very much uh, for coming into studio. Um, Rachel, we'll start with yourself because um, one of the reasons we were very keen to get you in, and people may have heard you already talking to Pat Kenny about this on the station earlier this week, um, is a study that you've done for uh, the Sunday Times and, and the Times uh, London edition um, about people's attitudes on the island to um, the troubles, but also exactly what their understanding of what the troubles entailed and the level of fatalities and the likes um, that were caused by it. And what you found is that there's a big generational shift between what people's perceptions of the troubles and what they entailed actually are. Yeah, there's a really big generational chasm in understanding the troubles. I mean, first of all, all all ages, when we asked them, we asked how many people do you think died in the troubles? We asked a thousand people in the Republic of Ireland in a national survey and just 59 got it right. 59 Um, out of a thousand? Yeah, well, the range, the correct answer obviously is between 3,500 and 3,720. Only 6% know that. 29 guessed over 30,000. Nine people guessed 100,000 and a large number underestimated. So all age groups don't know how many people were killed in the troubles. Which is quite striking in and of itself because you might say that there's more to it than just a level of fatalities. But if that, of course, is the human cost and that is what people are celebrating this weekend, the fact that Good Friday largely brought an end to bloodshed, the fact that there appears to be such... Ignorance is almost a strong word, but it's difficult to find any other one about the scale of human loss. A fail, yeah, a failure to recognise the victims as well when we talk about the troubles. What's the generational shift among there? Is there much of a difference between what was identified or the, the estimates put forward by, by younger respondents and then the older ones? Across the board, there's a really strong generational difference. And when we break it down by age groups, we ask them really, we just wanted to know basic historical understanding of the troubles. So we asked them about 15 key events of the troubles. Um, and what we found was for the under 35s, well, the older generation who lived through it know about 
most of them they say I have a reasonable knowledge of most of these things the under 35s while 62% knew about Bloody Sunday and 53% knew about the hunger strikes for the rest the majority didn't know about things like bombings Enniskillen Brighton and Warrington gained recognition by less than 26% massacres like Ballymurphy Kingsmill and the Miami Showband massacre less than 11% things like collusion internment the civil rights movement that disappeared less than 1 in 4 said they had a knowledge about that and 20 I know about none of these. Same happened for peace actors. So you're just even before you get onto peace actors now, I'll get your, your, your assessments of that as well. So does that effectively imply then that a lot of the younger respondents weren't aware, it would seem, of any major instance or any major event in the course of the Troubles at we, all? We asked them, do you have a, a reasonable knowledge of these events? And we gave them a list of about 15 events. Mm. So across generations... It was consistently that the under 35s just said, they just said, we don't know. And of course, you can never second guess exactly the motivations or any sense of bravado. But often if you ask a question in an opinion poll of, are you familiar with this event? A lot of people will falsely apply or reply that they are. Like, I know that there's a there's a standard practice, I think, in British opinion polling that whenever people are asked to rank certain prospective Labour leaders or, or Tory leaders, that there's a fake candidate that's put in to assess <laughs> whether they're actually being honest or not. And, and a large number of people will say, oh, yes, I'm, I, I would be confident in leadership of Stuart Thompson and there is no Stuart Thompson. So even at that, if, if around a quarter of people are saying that they have no, they're not familiar or don't have any reasonable knowledge of any of those events at all, in truth, there's a good chance that actually it might be quite a bit higher again. That there's a whole gener- generation of people that know nothing about the Troubles. Well, yeah, well, even with the stats we have, they're fairly shocking. So even if we just take them on face value, there is a big there's a huge knowledge, a memory gap. There's a huge vacuum of knowledge about the troubles for this new generation that grew up in peace. Um, and when I talk about peace, when we asked, we're 25 years now since the Good Friday Agreement, we said, do you know who played a role in the peace process? Mm. Um, so if they don't remember the conflict is one thing, do they remember the peace agreement? Um, so the most recognised were Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, but say John Hume, Nobel Peace Prize winner, 90% of over 55 say yes, he played a role because mm. we gave them a list of 10 people. That was 41% for the under 35s. That, that's it's it's striking in one sense, but also I suppose it's actually almost more remarkable that ten percent of people over fifty five wouldn't have identified him as being uh, a major <laughs> part of that. Um, I'll get you to talk to talk us through more of the other um, architects and their sort of recognition in a moment. Let's just bring in Valerie and Sheena on this. Sheena, I, I there's the the establishment journalist part of me that listens to all of this and goes, God, like is it mad that that young people don't know any of this? But I suppose in in a way. Isn't that the privilege of having grown up in peacetime, that you're not necessarily expected to carry over the traumas and the memories of all these terrible things that happened? Gavin, first of all, I'm shocked that you called yourself an establishment journalist. Um, But I think you're absolutely right. I think actually in response to uh, the polls uh, that we've just been discussing, um, you know, there was responses by both Bertie Ahern and Micheál Martin during the week. And one of the things uh, that I think Bertie Ahern said was that he wasn't surprised that people under 35 didn't have a huge recollection or understanding indeed or empathy perhaps uh, around the troubles because it was, was and that was the wish of people who were part of the architects of the Good Friday Agreement that we young people growing up in Ireland post-1998 wouldn't have to live through Mm. uh, the violence, the trauma of all of that time period. Mm. And I suppose in a way what I think Bertie Hearn was saying was just this idea that absolutely there's perhaps a bit of willful ignorance but it's also the way they wanted it that they didn't want young people to have to, uh, to I suppose live through all of that. Um, 
I do think there is a little bit of a permission slip here. I think uh, I've talked about this before. I contributed to the Shared Island Dialogues, um, you know, through the Department of Antishuk only a year or two ago. And one of the things that I was saying was that I gave myself a permission slip uh, to be willfully ignorant around Northern Ireland for a long, long time, even mm. through college. I, you know, I walked in through the doors of the John Hume building in Maynooth University and never really engaged with why his name was on the door. And, you know, as someone who's now 30, turning 31 at the end of this month, uh, you know, I was, what, six or whatever when the Good Friday Agreement uh, was signed. Um, you know, you know, that entire period for me uh, is really, you know, told through, you know, Tommy Gorman outside a, a blustery uh, stormant yeah. and I suppose the kind of flashes of, you know, the sounds and sights of of the troubles being so far away that the place uh, that Northern Ireland was, the cities, the towns, the communities, the people, they were mm. different. They had a beautiful lyrical accent, but I knew very little about them. And I didn't really challenge myself to engage much either. And I yeah. think the conversation we're having about the polling, about the lack of information or uh, understanding that people under 35 have, um, I think that we need to challenge ourselves on that permission slip that we've given ourselves to not engage with it. Okay. Because if we are talking about potentially, and I, I know there's, there's polling obviously today around the, the rise of Sinn Féin on the political front yeah. in the Republic, but if we are moving towards a situation where you may have, uh, you know, a Sinn Féin government in the South, uh, much more conversations uh, already emerging around Shared Ireland and United Ireland, all of that, I don't think people under 35 are, are equipped with um, the understanding, the appreciation uh, and the engagement with history that we need to be able to have that conversation in a rational, yeah. reasonable and informed way. Which is actually, it's a very good point uh, to, to bring to you Valerie because I, I was about to say you know you would have uh, covered a lot of it contemporaneously at the time and it would might be hard for you to imagine that, that there'd be so many younger people who would have no knowledge of those events and no knowledge of the, mm. that name and to a certain point everyone who was involved aspired for their own irrelevance they, they wanted to kind of almost at some point yeah. have themselves out of history but there is a point there isn't there that if, if you do ever want to have or aspire to a united island and I mean Ireland as well as Ireland that you kind of have to understand that for others, this isn't just a kind of a an abstract idea in the past, that this is something under which they still live every day. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I lived, obviously, um, through the Troubles. And for us, it was a daily occurrence. I mean, I remember in particular the massacre of the Miami show band mm. and one of the members lived next door to us. And in the middle of the night, we were all woken up, you know, to, to know that this had happened. So, I mean, although that's only a very small thing now, if you look back at young people and in their a small thing in their memory, these were the situations we were living with on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think what you said, Gavin, is very true, that young people, and I think the findings of Rachel's poll are absolutely fascinating, but I think what you said, that um, it was it's a privilege for young people to have grown up mm. in peacetime and not to have known this. This is yeah. actually but very, would very Would you not true. aspire to have people who, who aren't carrying that kind of societal PTSD? Like, in, in a way, yeah. it's exactly what you wanted, but Absolutely. You have to recognise that not everyone else has the same privilege. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And there's a piece in the Sunday Independent this morning from Rodney Edwards and he says, only as an adult did I learn that both sides suffered. Because young people growing up you know, if you're not too intent on it, you don't realise it was both sides. I think you think of your own side. I know when we were young and when all of this was happening in full swing, bombs overnight, horrendous atrocities, um, we tended just to think of one side. And I know um, I went to Germany as a young child and 
what astounded me was the World War II memorials in the German churches to their soldiers because I kind of thought that God was on the side of the Allies, you yeah. know? And mm. it's, it's something similar. But I mean, for young people now to be able to look back on it as history, not to forget it, never to forget it. Too many people suffered and it is part of who everybody is. But I just think it's a wonderful thing that they can grow up in peace, relative peace. We're not completely there yet. Mm. And to be able to live that nor- that normality, that this is a part of their past. I, I just think that's terrific. Uh, I stopped you mid-flow, um, Rachel, about one particular, you were going through the architects and the sort of the cross-generational recognition. I, I think I stopped you just when you were on the cusp of saying Mo Molum. Um, now, I, I, anyone who, w- who watched the Late Late Show on, on Friday night, they will have heard um, Ethan Moore making a very impassioned call for Mo Molum not to be forgotten in history because of the, the personal toll of what she was going through um, at the time of trying to, to um, break down the, the external walls of a lot of the actors. Um, and I, I was kind of going, well, hang on, have people genuinely forgotten about Mo Molum? I was kind of surprised this idea that she had been overlooked. But actually, your poll does find that the younger generations are more likely to write her out than anyone else almost. Yeah, she had one of the lowest recognitions um, of all of all the 10 actors we put to them. 38% of over 55s credited with, with a role, which is, is still relatively low, um, but it was just 18% of under 35s um, 18%? Knew who she was. Um, so yeah, she was quite an impactful figure and an interesting figure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's and there's been movies about her. She has a brilliant auto, autobiography. Mm. But yeah, she's been written out. I, ju- I just find that Astonishing. Yeah, but I, I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where when we consider um, the Good Friday Agreement and when we look at all the coverage, we tend to, uh, you know, see the men in suits kind of walking into the buildings um, and, and doing the, the handshaking and the growling and all of that stuff. Yeah. And what we're not seeing is all of the invisible cu- community work um, mostly and a lot of the time by women, um, women around kitchen tables, having conversations, debating, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, BBC Sounds did a, a really good podcast on this during the week, talking to female activists uh, and, and, and community activists um, in Northern Ireland from then and now. I mean, I think for me, what's you know particularly poignant about this and, and you know, is the fact that this something like this, the 25th anniversary is not something you can neatly package up and present, yeah. uh, you know, and say, look, this is, you know, either a celebration or a marking or anything mm. else. It's the trauma that exists, whether or not obviously under 35s, particularly in the Republic, have have any sense of it. Um, the trauma that exists for communities in Northern Ireland and for their families for what has happened exists and runs through generations right to the 15 year olds uh, on the streets building bonfires. It's not something uh, that, you know, goes away after 25 years. It's certainly not something that I think, uh, you know, we we need to forget uh, about in the sense that, you know, when you look at 25 years and where are we now, uh, you know, with lack, with the institutions not really working yeah. in Northern Ireland, mm. where, where mm. Uh, you know, elected politicians are, are not meeting each other to make basic decisions around healthcare and housing for people and communities most in need. Uh, you know, I think we have so much more work yeah. to do. And I think that's important uh, to, uh, to reflect yeah. on. Without, without meaning to overlook that, and Valerie, I'm sorry to, to squeeze you out, but I know that Rachel has to try and uh, get get to a train shortly enough. So and there's, there's, one, to there's, there's, and there's, there's one other <laughs> thing that, that I, that I, that I do want to, to get you to because I don't want you to, to miss the Ross Common Sunday roast. Um, th- there was an important bit and not to, to immediately just dismiss away some of the 
the, the, the modern day parts of it. But um, one thing which was exceptionally striking was when you polled different age groups about who they thought was responsible for the majority of bloodshed and of lives lost. And the the truth is that Republican paramilitaries objectively were responsible for claiming more deaths than anyone else. And yet that's not what your polling finds. Yeah, I know we talked about the privilege of not remembering, but there is some suggestion in the data that the version of events that is remembered by younger age groups is a slightly more staunch Republican slant um, that isn't necessarily, I don't know, grounded totally, in fact. So we ask them, who do you blame the most? And there's a generational, the generations disagree. Um, so who do you hold most responsible for the most deaths? Um, 37% of under 35s had the British Army. For over 55s, the majority thought it was Republican paramilitaries at 33%. Um, and then you can see it as well when we asked in a previous poll in November, um, under 35s were the least likely to think there was always an alternative to violence. Mm. And they were the most likely to think saying up the ra was socially acceptable. Um, so even you're saying, oh, it's good that they forget if they are forgetting key parts of yeah. the conflict and the human cost, mm. but hold a more romanticized version of the conflict or the or the combatants, that could present a problem when we're talking about a United Ireland referendum yeah. in the next few in the uh, next few years. And that romanticized point is definitely one that's worth bearing in mind for future debates about all of that. Uh, we don't want to make sure that you lose your Sunday roast, <laughs> so we will let you go. Uh, Rachel Lavin, data thank journalist you. with the Sunday Times and Times of London, thank you very much for joining us in studio to go off through all of that. Uh, Valerie and Sheena are staying with us. There is much more to come uh, in the papers when we're back after this. And before we move away uh, from the topic of the Good Friday Agreement, there was one piece in the Business Post, Valerie, which jumped out for you, which was something which was worth reflecting on. Yeah, I think it's amazing. And it's written by the editor, Daniel McConnell. And he says, it's right to acknowledge that history has happily proven us wrong on the accord because following the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, the business, the Sunday Business Post, as it was then, described the peace accord as an enormous disappointment. This is no deal for nationalist Ireland. Um, that was, that was the front page headline on yeah, the paper this, on the Easter this, Sunday. Yeah, and mm. this is a bit out of the editorial. It said the deal which ended the troubles after three decades would make Ireland the laughing stock of Europe. Now, fair dues to them, but he does point out that newspapers and editors, you know, they have to look at the pros and cons and call it, and they obviously called it wrong. Mm. And he said um, some opinions stand the test of time, others don't. And it's only fitting for us in the Business Post to acknowledge happily that history has proven us wrong. And fair play to them for, for acknowledging that Absolutely. because it is it does take um, you know one will be inclined to think that actually 25 years on that the paper's editorial stance might just have simply been forgotten about but but credit to um, those for acknowledging that there was an error on that part and also congratulations by the way uh, to Daniel McConnell because today is his first edition uh, as editor of the Business Post and hopefully after he manages to, to get himself Good into start. the full swing of things uh, we will have him in uh, to join us on the newspaper panel at some point in the future um, in the meantime uh, in today's papers um, the front page of the Mail on Sunday Sheena this idea yeah. of um, there being shortages with air traffic control over the skies of Dublin. Um, people may write it off as being, well, it's only some, some small hours overnight, but as we were reflecting, it still makes it pretty significant. No, this is a big deal. Also, it's a big deal when you've lost staff will to the point that, you know, pe- you know, people aren't, you know, feeling able to, uh, you know, to continue their shifts. Like, I mean, not just staff will, but like you're talking about uh, having to pause, uh, you know, flights coming into Dublin in order for people uh, in air traffic control to just go on a break. Um, like that's, I mean, from a workers' rights perspective alone, um, it is concerning. I mean, there seems to be a big issue with staff shortages. Um, I think this is, you know, obviously, 
obviously a hangover still uh, from COVID times um, where uh, the airports, including DAA, lost a lot of staff um, over that period. And so you're really seeing uh, the, the, the aftermath of that now. But I mean, the, what's what will concern con- customers and people who fly uh, or are, are coming even across the Easter break now? which is an extremely busy time uh, in Dublin Airport, is that, you know, apparently, according to the Mail on Sunday, in- insiders are warning that this disruption, which was a two-hour disruption at the time, is not a once-off. Um, so I think even though it was highly unusual, um, I think there is concern that the pressure on staff um, at the moment um, in that field, which is probably highly specialised in, in relation to uh, in, in relation to that, uh, kind of bringing in uh, flights into Dublin Airport, uh, you know, that air traffic controllers could be in a situation where where they will do more of these uh, these breaks, um, mm. and that I think will be concerning for all. And the, the, the like the point is worth stressing again that it's not necessarily just passenger flights that are interrupted by this. That there's there's a lot of like transatlantic freight which would have to fly over the Atlantic, go through the Shannon airspace, then ends up going through Dublin on its way onto the continent. So even all the stuff that you think doesn't affect you, if it's a delivery of something that's going from America to the continent and then making its way back. That's affected by this. Yeah, it, like the 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 source uh, who was speaking to the Mail on Sunday said that it was inbound, outbound, and overflying traffic. So you're dead right, Gavin. Like anything uh, that may not even have been coming into Dublin Airport may have been impacted. It's a very complicated space uh, above the skies uh, of Ireland and across Dublin. And you know the idea that uh, you know flights anywhere might be disrupted. It, it has a huge knock-on effect. Uh, across Europe never mind just Dublin Mm. Um, Elsewhere in the papers um, Valerie you were browsing through uh, the inside of the mail on Sunday behind the the story about the air traffic control and you've uh, found you've been very exercised uh, by a magnificent piece on pages 22 (laughs) and 23 of the mail on Sunday which begs the question um, for the weekend that's in it did Jesus sail to Britain? According to local folklore, he went there as a teenager with his merchant uncle. Uh, present the evidence to us, Madam okay, Prosecution. Now you guys are laughing, okay? No, okay. sorry, that, well, I didn't know what uh, you heard there. You've got to remember that Jesus was a carpenter, okay? That's what he worked at. And this paper reckons that he went to Cornwall because Cornwall, in Cornwall, they'd been mining tin for about a thousand years before Jesus was born. So what do you do if you're a young carpenter in Nazareth? You take off with your uncle, Joseph of Arimathea, and you go and you learn the skill of tin making in Cornwall so you can incorporate it into your carpentry. Now, there's always been folklore about this. And the one story is that a ship that he was on sank and they went to Cornwall instead of wherever else they were going. But if you look at the history of Cornwall and the area, there are lots of giveaways. There's an ancient well, which has an ancient stone and it's called Jesus's Well. There's an ancient church and over it, there's a stone which says, Jesus's church. Now, okay, but a church in in which denomination? Because Jesus, you know, famously was not building in the business no. of building churches to in homage to himself. So it doesn't actually say. Okay, but so the interesting thing church, is, but it's, he probably had done it in wood if he was. You'd have thought so, he? yeah. No, 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 no. Or tin. Back then. <laughs> yeah. We are, you know, we're scoffing at this, but this is all wrong because um, eminent uh, professors. And historians have now entered the row because it was only a f- it was only folklore originally, and they have concluded that yeah, you know, it's pretty sure that he may have done this. Obviously, they can't prove it. I mean, there weren't any passports to be stamped back in those days. How are you feeling about the this this story, Valerie? Do you think it's true? Well, I mean, if Saint Patrick could come to Antrim. Okay. But St. Patrick originally came from Wales. Yeah, it was one okay. sea crossing. One Jesus sea coming crossing. from the Middle East across all of Europe and then finding himself at the westernmost well, tip of Britain. He could have stopped on the way for Airbnb or whatever, Gavin. 
Yeah. You know, let's not just miss it. And these guys... I mean, <laughs> out of should, hand, Gavin. Hang on a second. Hand. The Vikings came to Ireland, right? Yes. Yeah. Now, that was some hell that was, of a trip. That was a thousand years after Jesus made this journey from the yeah, Middle East to Cornwall. Yeah, but the boats weren't any better, really, if you look back, there, or uh, rather the ships. I mean, look at the uh, ship they've rebuilt the, uh, Glen, the stallion of Glendalough that they've rebuilt from old plans in Copenhagen. And that was an ancient ship. So that would have exactly the same capacity and they sailed it to Ireland. So it is quite feasible that Jesus, his uncle and maybe lots of other people mm. could have come to Cornwall. I mean, Cornwall is the very tip of England. It's a very easy yes. one to get to. Yeah. They may have stopped on the way. They may have, may have needed provisions. But I think it's feasible and I think on Easter Sunday we should be the last people to denigrate this story. Okay, so, to, to be fair, it, it's a point. Just got us through again, Just the, so the uncle with whom he travelled, this Joseph um, of Arimathea, which presumably then is, is a brother of Mary, given that he wouldn't have had a father Joseph and an uncle Joseph on the same side of the family so one presumes this is Joseph of Arimathea is a brother of Mary of Nazareth. Brother of Mary I think. Um, yeah. If anyone yeah. any other biblical scholars want to get in touch and I don't mean just here, which yeah. is that if anyone's on Instagram you should follow Shane Don Byrne who's an incredible comedian but he put up a video in which he plays uh, the Holy Mary uh, uh, talking about um, Jesus uh, coming back after Easter Easter Sunday and I think everybody needs to watch it so Shane Don Byrne on Instagram give it a, give it a watch this Actually, morning. I'd forgotten about the existence of that video and I'm, I'm going to so watch good. it as soon as I finish here now because uh, it, it is an excellent one. Uh, genuinely, I do. I, I, I don't mean to be blithe and, and I don't mean to sound dismissive of it because if it is core to, to uh, the belief systems of some listeners, but by all means, I, I don't want to sound like I'm at all dismissing it. I, I just find it slightly implausible that he might have made the journey from the Middle East to Cornwall um, 2,000 years ago. But by, by all means, I'm open to the idea. And um, if you are up on the um, the biblical um, family history, I guess, of, of Mary of Nazareth, and if you know that J- uh, Joseph of Arthur was a brother, do get in touch. 87 106 um, an interesting piece also in the mail on Sunday Sheena and I wanted to get your take on this with yeah. your your hat as a former president of the Union of Students in Ireland um, a proposal uh, to or a pilot scheme to swap teachers across the school so if there's a, a teacher who is in demand or a teacher who is seen as getting excellent student outcomes um, in one school a proposal that there would effectively be a staff swap so yeah. that that teacher could then go work elsewhere too I know I'm, 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 I'm immediately cynical of this move uh, by Minister Norma Foley because I think uh, look at I'll, I'll explain what's happening first which is that uh, the Department of Education uh, is piloting a scheme in secondary schools from September where teachers of, stu- of subjects in high demand move between schools so the sense from that isn't that it's a particularly brilliant teacher necessarily or getting particular uh, strong results uh, from my reading of the article but rather that the subjects themselves so for instance math, Spanish and physics are, are, are uh, you know subjects that are particularly in demand so they're looking at basically doing teacher swaps uh, across secondary schools um, so there was a, a dull question uh, tabled by uh, Sinn Féin uh, TD Ono Bryn um, you know uh, in relation to this and, and Minister Foley responded to say that the, the, the aim of it was to recruit teachers in high demand subjects and give teachers a full time teaching contract the reason why, for my cynicism Gavin is because I think uh, there is an issue, uh, you know, altogether around the recruitment of teachers, around the pay for teachers uh, at the moment, um, particularly teachers in, in urban areas around Dublin who just simply cannot afford uh, to be in Dublin. But aside from that, around teaching contracts, uh, near impossible to get permanent ones mm. uh, at the moment. And I think there's a lot of people who will be seeing this idea for a, a teacher swap uh, in, in, re- in regards to these uh, particular subjects as being kind of a cynical move. I'm not entirely sure it'll help, uh, you know, significantly. Um, 
I suppose uh, the, mm. the the issues being faced uh, by students and by teachers uh, in schools um, around those in demand subjects. Yeah. Uh, so I, I remain cynical, uh, uh, to be honest with you, Gavin. <laughs> well, at least thank you for for bringing your cynicism uh, to the table and wearing it on your sleeve uh, so vocally. I think one thing which is worth distressing about this because even when I saw the headline, I thought, hang on, they're not going to get a situation now where if you've got a good maths teacher in one school, yeah, that you're going to ro- rotate them around. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. then does that mean then that a a perceivably weaker performing maths teacher gets subbed in yeah. this is to try and make sure uh, that actually teachers have a full yeah, working and, week uh, yeah, absolutely to make sure they have a full working re- uh, week and also that, that students themselves would have access to things like Spanish or, or higher level maths or yeah. what, whatever is it very in demand and may not be provided by teachers currently uh, yeah. contracting the school I mean notably uh, retired teachers can work for up to 50 days in 2023 without it affecting pension entitlements I, yeah. I would say a lot of younger teachers would say uh, that you know would, would urge some of those retired teachers to, to please move on yeah. so that uh, the younger teachers can actually get on mm. with uh, permanent contracts because many of them are finding that very difficult yes. at the moment. Uh, a few texts and tweets that are still coming in about our early discussion with Rachel Laval about the uh, younger generations and how much they're aware uh, of the troubles. Of course, this being the weekend of uh, the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago. Dan says, I'm not surprised that under 35s don't know about the troubles. Irish history is not taught but washed over because if we do, it also shines a light on the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil roles in the War of Independence and the Civil War, which means they can't be telling people about Sinn Féin and the IRA without telling their own story says Dan not sure if the War of Independence and Civil War is glossed over but um, you probably have a point that the modern syllabus maybe should do do more to reflect um, troubles north of the border in the 1970s onwards um, somebody else says Gavin I'm 50 I live in the south and the issues in Northern Ireland have never affected me or anyone I know in any shape or form we don't know anyone that was killed there I've been to Northern Ireland five times in my life all great experiences well, to be fair, going to Northern Ireland is often a lovely experience, but um, I suspect maybe it affected you in ways that you haven't realised just because you weren't, didn't know anyone who was killed or injured. I, I don't think it probably is as true as you might think it is. Um, somebody else says, is it not a failure of our education system to include the troubles as a bigger part of the syllabus? Should history be elective? I'm reminded of the push to remove history as a core junior search subject a few years ago. I feel as though we are now seeing the importance of history as a subject, especially when building towards a future where a shared United Ireland seems more and more like says one texter final one for now from Rose such waffle about how lovely that the younger generation are not aware of the violence that occurred in the north this generation are going to install the next government based on this ignorance says Rose Um, which is it's one analysis in fact I'll read one more just before I have to go to an ad break Mick says I'm kind of baffled by your surprise, my surprise that is, um, that young people today know so little about the Troubles. Sure, where would they learn it? It's not a big part of the history curriculum in school. Also, a slight sense of distraction in that Sinn Féin are going to be elected in the next election. Finnegal's last throw of the dice, maybe. Um, not sure maybe where the last point of that text is going, uh, but either way, thank you for all those texts and tweets. Do keep them coming in. 087-1400-106 for your WhatsApps, 53106, the number to get in touch by text. More to come from the papers. We're back with Valerie and Sheena after this. Has to be said, not all of our listeners this morning are fully uh, in agreement with Valerie Cox about the plausibility of uh, Jesus of Nazareth having made it to uh, Cornwall to study um, tin. Uh, John, for example, gets in touch to say that why would Jesus and Joseph of Arimathea call past countries with huge tin deposits like Spain, Portugal and Sardinia to get to Cornwall? Are you sure they weren't going for the scrumpy, uh, says John. (laughs) And somebody else who hasn't signed their name uh, to this rather pithy text saying Jesus could have flown to Cornwall, he's Jesus. And no need for air traffic controllers either. Well, I mean, to that effect, he could have walked on water, really, couldn't he? He wouldn't have had to worry about flying at all. Um, do keep your thoughts coming on that. And genuinely, if there's anyone who is up on Joseph of Arimathea and can point out the family heritage to Jesus, um, do let us know. 
53106 for your texts 087 106 is the number for WhatsApp uh, still joined in studio by Valerie Cox and Sheena Carroll and also on the line um, by Killian Woods a senior business reporter uh, with the Business Post Killian, uh, you are responsible uh, for quite a lot of coverage inside the paper today but also the front page story um, about the possibility of the process of appointing a new Director General of RTE um, almost collapsing uh, at an emergency meeting on Friday tell us more yeah, so it's a lot has merged this week about the appointment process for the Director General. This is the person who's going to replace Steve Forbes, whose uh, tenure now is coming to an end, and as uh, he was the current Director General. And look, the process has been going on for a few months. A lot of it's naturally been behind closed doors as an interview process goes on. You know, outside, outside consultants were brought in to headhunt talent. And this week it emerged that pretty much the front runner with all the bookies, David McRedmond, was out of, out of the running. That, that emer- We reported that on Wednesday on the Business Post uh, website. And then the following day, it emerged that then Kevin Backhurst, a former um, RT member of staff at RT and very senior member of staff at RT, now at Ofcom in the UK, the, regu- the, the media regulator, is the, is the favourite. Now, I think with, off the back of that, um, put in a lot of calls to see what was going on and then it emerged then on a Friday morning that there was an emergency meeting called uh, by the chair of the RT board pretty much to get gather the board around to ratify the appointment of Kevin Backhurst but that didn't exactly go to plan and for the chair and many members of the board were shocked at that result they felt they were not aware of how not kept in the loop about how the process was going maybe maybe it wasn't communicated them well enough that they would be just brought a brought a candidate by the interview panel but mm. so the interview panel was made up of three or three board members who went off and then did the work in, in, confident, in confidentially when it's straight to say they're not allowed to actually talk about it once it's gone into that stage just okay. bring bring the preferred candidate and we're expected to ratify it that was expected to go to a vote so the board would vote on that and mm. um, vote it through ideally and then it'd go to the minister who you know would essentially rubber stamp the minister couldn't be seen to be you know, disagreeing yes. with the board of yeah, RT yeah. and who could be appointed the new director general but that is the process but no vote was held so the, and the, the vote wasn't held, held and one presumes that the reason why the chair didn't go ahead with the vote on a matter that they had proposed was because there was a good chance of the vote not going through and the whole appointment exactly. process collapsing um, was there any explanation given um, to those board members Killian as to why the RTE chair Shuni Raleigh who I should stress by the way is no relation of my own um, why she proposed to, to arrange all of this at such a, a short notice basis that it wasn't done in a, a slightly more advance notice kind of a way well it appears that there was a well, whether it was circulated up to the up to the chair but that there was many board members disappointed that they were reading more about this in the business post and actually been informed through their you know kind of high level channel they are involved in an rte that but it wasn't communicated to them that before before the friday essentially what the meeting would be about that it was just they were gathered to approve kevin backhurst and that that was the end of it. They weren't. They, they, she, there wasn't questions to be taken about why he was been appointed or why he was a preferred, can, preferred candidate. She could vote on it or not. And yes, as you said, that vote was abandoned essentially when it was became very clear that or became at least clear that there definitely would, but definitely wouldn't be pushed through. And then you'd have to go into the processes of the RT board about can he then actually be appointed. So yeah. what was agreed upon was that he would now go and present to the board his vision for RTE, which apparently swayed the um, interview panel, which is, is plausible. Kevin Backers is very liked in, in RTE, but he's a former newsroom staff, very experienced BBC. You know, there was some kind of dismay about who, who this Kevin Backers candidate is by some board members. That's a bit unfair. Oh, sorry, it's rather unfair. And Kevin Backers would be very well liked in RTE, mm. very well known. Because if he was, he was overlooked. He, yeah, yeah, he, he was um, deputy DG under, I think, Noel Curran back in the, the mid, yes. mid, mid part of the last decade. And he was the head of news and current affairs. So he is senior enough and has 
some understanding of how the whole um, organisation works. Um, very briefly though, Killian, um, part of the, the apparent alarm or the bafflement among some board members is not so much that it was Kevin Backhurst brought forward so much as the apparent elimination from the process of David McRedmond, who was a former chief executive of TV3. He's currently the chief executive of Unpost and he's also the chair of AIR. And, and I suppose objectively looking at it from the outside, if he's somebody who's the chair of one state communications body and the CEO of another, one would have thought that he might have been in the box seat for a job at RTE. And that's what the bookies thought. And, and this is where we get down to kind of the three criteria, maybe that roughly they have been judged on, you know, can they manage a balance sheet? Can they manage organisational change? And then they have good relations with government. We understand Kevin Backhurst has actually good relations with government, although some people question whether they're as good as David Redmond's. But let's say even they're on a level par. You know, Kevin Backhurst is, an, is, is a mainly newsroom guy with that background. Whereas David McRedmond, to give him his dues, has absolutely turned around on PUS from what it was 2016 into a company with new revenue, like new revenue streams, which sounds business like business speak, but he has genuinely turned that business around. And that's why he was seen as the person to come into RT, which needs new revenue streams, which needs to pretty much kind of trim its wage bill. I say trim staff is a bit of a harsh statement. It needs to trim its wage bill. And some board members would say that you know, to actually get um, some staff there on not as, mu- not as much money as they should have, more money to keep them at the broadcaster. But I think, yeah, David McRedmond was seen as the favour by everyone then for him to be essentially out of the running after one round of interviews seemed was very was kind of people are a bit surprised that he wouldn't at least get to the second round yeah I suppose maybe this is the, the nature of uh, situations where you have um, subcommittees that are set up by the board to go away and do this stuff um, under some level of confidentiality that when you can't feed back your, your entire workings to the whole board it does make it slightly difficult to try and uh, sell the conclusion that you've come to um, briefly Killian before I let you go you've got another piece inside the paper um, it's at the top of page 10 for anyone who's got uh, a business post with them this morning um, quite significant um, advice that's been given uh, to prospective um, citizens of the capital by one of the, uh, the capital's biggest landlords. This is a firm called Patrizia. And um, they've been addressing some of their prospective uh, tenants about what they should do to lower the cost of living. Yeah, so it's kind of a, it's, it's hard to describe exactly what maybe it is. It's, it's maybe a sheet. Patrizia is a German investment fund. They came into Ireland a few years ago. They've been, you know, it maybe buying up apartment blocks a bit harsh. They would be forward funding the development of apartment blocks and bringing quite, you know, quite expensive rentals to the market, maybe a 2,000 to 3,000 a month for, for maybe one or two bed apartments. But they've done a little rundown of like what, what they think of Dublin. And like, they, they, in parts, give quite brutal analysis of Dublin, and in parts, they have a lot of crack with their language. Like, like they pitch Dublin as this, you know, capital of heritage and hedonism. Like, depends what type of hedonism they're talking about there. Mm-hmm. There is many different definitions of hedonism. But then they talk about how pretty much how tough it is to live in Dublin. Now, this is coming from a, a landlord that is charging its tenants between two, well, more, two to more than that, way more than that for rent. And they say that pretty much if you want to lower your cost of living. If, if anyone living in Dublin wants to lower the cost of living, they should move to virtually any other city in the European Union, which is quite a stark thing for uh, an operator in this area, pretty much you know, in the cost of living environment. Mm. To be saying that to tenants and people, it, it seems a little bit inappropriate. They're having a bit of fun with it all. They're, they're saying that you know they read social media and Dublin's bus, bus network and public transport is outdated, outmoded, you know, it's unfit for purpose. They're probably right there. But then, you know, it's just, it's, it's the tone of it is, I would recommend to people to check it out. The tone of it is like, safe to say, quite all over the place. Like it's, mm. it's, they're trying to have fun with it saying it's a land of crack and, and they love their pints, but also, you know, comes at a price. You're going to spend half, more than half a million for, for a home and pretty much leave 
if yeah. you want to save money. Any, literally anywhere else, yeah. I think. It, it's a remarkable line. Uh, there's one problem, says, says their report. You need deep pockets to afford the high cost of living and the pricey accommodation, they say, without apparently recognising that they themselves, as one of the capital's biggest landlords, may have something to do with the price of accommodation. Um, fascinating stuff. Thank you for, for guiding us through both of those stories, Killian. That's Killian Woods, who is a senior business reporter uh, with the Business Post, joining us on the record uh, this morning. 11.52, so a few minutes left with Valerie Cox and Sheena Cahill in studio. Um, there is a, a historical theme to some of the texts. Uh, one message has come in to remind us that Britain was part of the Roman Empire during the lifetime of Jesus Christ with constant travel and communication by sea. So there was a possibility of uh, our Lord having made it to Cornwall uh, in his lifetime. Uh, and a couple of other people who are getting in touch just to clarify that, in fact, the history of the Troubles is a specific learning outcome uh, on the junior cycle history curriculum. Uh, and there is an entire topic dedicated to it at senior cycle as well if people do choose to study history to leaving cert level. Diana has been in touch to say as the mother of an 18 year old Leaving Cert student she begs to differ with those who say that it's not part of the curriculum my son is fully aware of the troubles and has a perspective that incorporates many points of view they are a significant part of the study of history if it's a chosen subject maybe those who aren't familiar with the troubles aren't aware of them because they're simply not interested in history she says as someone who was a young Irish girl in London in the late 80s and 90s I am grateful for my child's privilege of growing up in a peaceful time we live in another world now and we can all be grateful for that says Diana uh, thank you for that message Diana 0874 1400-106 for your WhatsApps. Um, Valerie Cox, are you excited and Delira about the prospect of Joe Biden coming to Ireland this week? Um, I think it's a very good thing, Gavin, but I think the actual arrangements are absolutely ridiculous. Why so? does he need 800 people? <laughs> 800 people? Come on, where are so they that's, even that's, going to that's sleep? That's the size of his travelling entourage. Yes, okay. it is. And it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, he has an interesting little um, itinerary while he's here. And I've just read that he's going to walk about this in the Mail on Sunday. He's going to walk about in Dundalk and Carlingford, right? Mm-hmm. And while that's going on, there is going to be a US aircraft carrier patrolling the Irish eastern coastline to make sure nothing happens to him. I mean, did they learn nothing from the assassination of President Kennedy? You know, you don't bring in all the security and then let your president walk around shaking hands. And this thing of meeting his relatives, he's meeting a third cousin once removed, I think it is, for lunch. Now, I don't even know who my third cousins are. I don't know if you guys do. Would you you not be delighted if that third cousin was the president of the United States of America? If I was the third cousin yeah. and if it was yeah. going to benefit me, like yeah. maybe a little trip to the States. I don't, I yeah, know, I don't think I mean, anyone in Mayo is going to be giving out too much for, for the amount <laughs> but of points. Yeah, like, do, do, do you think that there are there are, there are are um, members of the Finnegan clan uh, and Carnies in Louth and that there are Bluets in Ballina who are complaining that the president is coming over no, to say hello? No, Gavin, I don't. But just listen to this bit, which I absolutely have to read you. This is um, a school teacher um, in Ballina, Aileen Horkin. And just listen to this. Um... She said, you'd know the Secret Service men, particularly handsome FBI looking types. They're fit and good looking with two council officials. And you're like, oh, the Americans have arrived. Everybody apparently is getting excited about these FBI types arriving in Ballina. And the work that's going on is extraordinary. The council is out. They're redoing the traffic islands. They're doing pothole repairs, road maintenance. Buildings are being painted. Bunting and flags are out. Shop windows are being dressed. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, that end of it's the great. The towns will be thrilled. Yeah, it's <laughs> thrilled a bit. Doing all the, if they don't win first prize in the tidy towns next year, there's I know, something wrong. With all that money invested. But I do them. think, you know, we're spending too much money. Last time when Biden came here, he was only vice president. Yeah. We spent five uh, million. I, don't get me going on the security for that day because I remember I, I covered his visit that no, day. Get going, and I was, we I was on walkabout with him in Ballina and um, we had to go through 
I think we went to Swinford to get swept by security. It was airport style security and then we were on their minibuses so we were shepherded everywhere and they still considered us to be clean from a security perspective. But when he was going walkabout in Ballina, he was walking up to crowd barriers at the side of the road and shaking hands with any Tom, Dick or Harriet <laughs> who had just walked up uh, while we who had been security swept were actually being kept five yards away, away in them. the middle of the road. That we, we were the ones who had supposedly been checked by Secret Service and we could get nowhere next or near the man whose visit we were supposed to be covering on the day. Yeah. Do you think 800 people is a bit excessive though, Sheena? I'm not surprised though. I'm not sure if it's excessive because I have absolutely no concept of the security needs of the United States President. Um, but I do think, uh, uh, you know, it, it will be a big strain on our resources on Garda Shiakana, uh, the army, all of that. I think we're not used to this kind of uh, aplomb, you know, here mm. where we're, we don't really do the ceremony thing uh, as well as the, they do in, in America. I think, you know, I think, again, I do think there's going to be a strain on services, but I think uh, there won't be a cow milked or a sheep shorn or anything. <laughs> There'll be barely barely any Guinness or drink left in, in, in the whole of Mayo, <laughs> never mind. Uh, oh, what about the Garda? Well, actually, the, the, gar- the Garda thing is, is going to be a big thing as well, yeah. because if there is a visit from King Charles later this year as well, people will remember in 20 2011 when we had President Obama and Queen Elizabeth in short order that there was a massive Garda overtime bill but that is the price you pay. We should look it'd be great now that the Garda are more focused on the presidential visit than yeah. like helping right-wingers go into libraries well, around the country well, that'd be great. Uh, that's, uh, that's a Shinshke Alala for another time what I'm struck by though is that apparently if all the Secret Service people in Ballina are handsome then we'll be speaking to the presumably very handsome uh, Tim Miller a former, a former Secret Service agent who has worked on protecting presidents he'll be with us in the second hour of the programme in the meantime uh, Valerie Cox and Sheena Cahill Thank you both very much for joining me in studio and happy Easter to you both. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.